On today's Private Stories podcast, I talked to Sean Atwood, who's an English former ecstasy distributor turned YouTuber, public speaker, activist and author. Cheshire-born Sean Atwood learned how to trade in the UK stock market at age only 14. By age 30, he was a millionaire living in Arizona, USA. A lover of the UK rave scene, he wanted to bring the rave scene over to America and started distributing ecstasy on a large scale. Sean was arrested and told he would serve 200 years in prison. In the end, he served a total of six years in a high security prison amongst murderers and gang members. Sean tells myself, psychologist Dr. Becky Spellman, his story about drug use, anxiety, and surviving prison life. Sean, it's great to meet you. Thanks for having me on, Becky. How did it all start for you? When the rave scene started in the UK, I saw it on the news. I was like, what is all this about young people breaking into warehouses and stuff? And I tried ecstasy and it, it melted all that anxiety away from me. Previously, I wouldn't dance. I was too self-conscious, wouldn't go up and talk to people. But on ecstasy, I was just dancing and hugging people and making friends with strangers all night long. It had such a profound effect on me that I pledged in concert with my other goal to go to America and make a million in the stock market. If I did that, I would try and transfer that rave scene over to America. And I did. Um, Ten years later, I'd made a couple of million in the stock market. I was emotionally immature. Money went to my head. I started to throw these rave parties. But the ecstasy was scarce, so I had people importing it from Holland. So that's where I went way beyond the law. And America was good to me, and I abused it. And May 16, 2002, SWAT team smashed my door down. Wow. Yeah. That must have been terrifying for you. Going into a jail where... It was run by the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. If you're a white person, you come under their control. And not only were the gang members murdering the prisoners, but even the guards are murdering the prisoners. It was absolutely terrifying, but it did prove to be the educational opportunity of a lifetime. Six years in prison. What happened mm. in that time? Various stages of adaptation. So when you go in, you got to get used to the sounds of people's heads getting bashed against toilets, people's bodies getting thrown around, people getting carried out on stretches look like they're dead. And you go into shock. If you ever held a little animal, like a bird or a mouse, and you can just feel its heart going ding, 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 ding. For the first couple of nights, my heart is going like that all against the mattress all night long, and I can't sleep. And then the prisoners start coming up to you saying, you've got to get that look of shock off your face or else you're going to be the one getting your head bashed against the toilet next because any expression of weakness is exploited. So six months later, I've got what's called dead eyes where you're completely not showing any emotion at all. Because by now, you know, I've just seen violence almost every single day, ranging from standard someone just getting beat up and carried out on a stretcher to it. So you just have to become immune to it. I mean, internally, yeah, it's you know your adrenaline's still going, and to this day, if I go to a restaurant or bar, I prefer to sit with my back against the wall because I feel safer because I'm conditioned from this environment of constant danger. So you learned quite quickly strategies to survive in prison. You know, I had to think um, 
who can help me, who can I make alliances with, and who could possibly harm me. So everything you think about in your everyday life, what we're going to do this evening, what we're going to eat, what I'm going to watch, it's all out the window. It just becomes, raw, you go into raw survival mode. Were you traumatised by being in prison? Yes. I was too busy trying to adapt to understand that at that point in time. But towards the end of it, my guardian angel was a therapist. He was called Dr. O. He was into neuroscience and Eastern philosophy, and I really clicked with him. Um, he's the one who helped me go inside myself and address my anxiety. And he also explained, Sean, to go for an environment like this where the laws of society don't apply, the rules in here, it, everything's upside down, is going to give you a resilience that's going to last you for the rest of your life. So that goes back to me now looking back at this and seeing it get me off the drugs, give me a new value system and strengthening me um, to deal with things that as an anxious person I previously couldn't because on ecstasy I was the life and soul of the party. But it became my crutch. For 10 years I was going out every weekend taking drugs, club drugs, because I thought I wasn't an interesting enough person to be around. I had this anxiety. But when you're living with hundreds of people in prison, many of whom I would not have chose to be around, when you then come out into society, the, the world seems like a safe place. So to someone who has anxiety, that anxiety's gone way, way down because it, it, after being in a dangerous environment, it is a safer place to come to. Come to. Nothing could be as bad yeah. as the yeah. danger that you're yeah. in in prison. So that's how it did me good. How high did your anxiety levels go when you did go to prison? Off the scale, because I couldn't sleep. My second year was the worst when they told me I was facing a maximum 200 year sentence. They said every time I spoke about drugs on the phone, carried five to 10 years, I had 20 plus charges. They would stack all my charges up to 200 years if I went to trial and lost. I'd been moved in with mostly murderers in maximum security because they doubled my bail to 1.5 million cash only. Cockroaches were crawling all over me every single night because it was infested. They literally lined up in the cracks in the wall at 10 o'clock at light. They knew when the lights were about to go out and they would just flood the room, get on your feet, legs, tickling your hands, trying to get in your ears, eat your earwax, getting in your nose, mouth. After about four or five nights of cockroaches crawling on you, unable to sleep, you start to hear voices and you start to hallucinate. And they stopped my girlfriend from visiting me at the time. I had all these bleeding and itching skin infections and bed sores. I had a, a pink eye infection. My eyelid was drooping. There was yellow pus coming out of my eyeball. And they said 200 years. I'm thinking, I don't think I can take much, much more of this. And that was at the point where I just planned to kill myself. So that was when my anxiety was at its highest. So you were actively making plans for a suicide? Yeah, I was just going to slash my wrists after a guard did a security walk and bleed out. And what stopped me was, I looked at the seven photos of my family. I wanted to say goodbye to my family. Not in person, but just by looking at the photos of them. And then I, I started to think, my mum's going to get a call saying he's, he's your son slashed his wrist in a, in a jail cell. And I couldn't bear the thought of doing that. And even now it makes me feel sad just thinking about it. But yeah. it was that love of my family that stopped me from killing myself. So.
When you're on drugs for 10 years, all you care about is getting high and having fun with your friends at the weekends. It slowly erodes your conscience. It's really interesting because mm. ecstasy, they say, can play on people's empathy. It can mm. really turn it on and heighten it. Mm. And, and it sounds like your empathy was quite dampened. And then it took this huge experience to actually help you learn perhaps real empathy without substances. That's a really good point. And I would like to qualify something there. I went from just taking ecstasy to taking club drug cocktails. And I would say that ecstasy is an empathogenic drug. And when I was on it, I really felt how other people were feeling around me. And to this day, I still think that I still feel more how people are feeling because of my experiences on ecstasy. But when you start to mix it up with crystal meth and ketamine and cocktails of Mexican pharmaceuticals and GHB, um, then you lose that, you completely lose it. You just go into the dark side of drugs. So I crossed a line where I actually lost that empathogenic thing to where I was in the dark side of drugs and hanging out with gangsters. And there was points where I was just doing drugs for the sake of doing drugs. I'm wondering what happened in early life for you mm. to go to drugs in the first place mm. and want to try and activate empathy through substances? I think I was going through a normal uh, period of hormonal teenage changes and anxiety when it got to the point where I had the incident with the drunks. And what happened was I just passed my driver's license test, went to fill up my mum's little red car with petrol, and then these four big guys started to behave abusively towards me, and I'm thinking it's brave to stand up to them. You know, I've watched movies like Rambo and stuff, and that was a big mistake. And they surrounded me, knocked me down, started kicking me, kicking me in the head. And all I could do was curl up in the fetal position. And the pain was increasing, intensifying. And my body was starting to get warm and numb. And one had hit me in the face with an iron bar, knocking pieces of my teeth out, which is why I got these veneers. And um, I was seeing stars. And it got to the point where my body went so warm and numb, I couldn't feel the pain anymore. So I thought they stopped hitting me. So I opened my eyes and they were still hitting me. I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going on here? This, is this what dying feels like? They're not just beating you up. They, 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 this is, you, you're about to die. And I couldn't, I couldn't escape from that situation. I just felt completely helpless and I thought my life was slipping away. And um, I'd blacked out actually, I went unconscious. So I woke up in a pool of blood and they'd gone, smashed my car windows, police car went past with its siren on. I thought it was chasing them, but I was so embarrassed. I just, I managed to drive home. My vision was blurred. There was a hole in the window. My parents freaked out, took me for medical treatment, but all, was, all that was broken was my teeth. So after that then, if I went out, I wouldn't go up and talk to women. I was too self-conscious to dance, wouldn't talk to strangers. And it was like that until I started taking ecstasy. Ecstasy made it go away, yeah, for the weekend. But once I was off it, I didn't feel like I w people want, would want to be around me because I was that anxious person again. So Are it was a cycle then for 10 years. Were you anxious before the incident? Just at a normal, you know, conscious, you're a teenager and you're conscious of your appearance and anxious about that kind of thing, yeah. Self-esteem is made up a lot 
by our early life experiences, yeah. relationship with parents. Mm -hmm. Was there anything that your parents, that you wish you could, they could have given you and they, they didn't quite manage to give you that could have maybe fed into some of the anxiety issues? I can't think of anything. Um, the only thing was, the thing that caused me anxiety as a little kid was the arrival of my sister. How old were you? Um, she's about five or six years younger than me. So I remember going to see my mum. She was in the hospital, she'd given birth, and uh, they wouldn't let me in, I couldn't see my mum. And um, then I had a lot of rivalry with my sister growing up. So that's, that's the only other thing I can remember from my childhood. Did your parents treat you differently? Well, I would tease my sister a lot. I guess it, perhaps it stemmed from that jealousy of, of this new arrival, getting the attention from my mum. Yeah. Well, this is going way back. I mean, this is so young. It's like, but I guess these things lay things down that affect you later in life, don't they? Yeah. yeah. How did your parents deal with that? You're teasing your little sister. Well, I would get told off a lot and um, sulk and then it got to the point where my sister would snitch me out for things I hadn't even done, and I would get blamed. <laughs> but, but I was a bit of a swine for teasing. I shouldn't have been doing all this, you know. I should have been given a brotherly love instead of having this rivalry with her. And it wasn't until later when we were teenagers and I was a rave and she was in the in, into the indie scene that we really got to know each other as people and were friends and all that teasing was over. Yeah. What happened with family when you were arrested and, um, mm. and sent to prison? How, how did that go? With my family, I had planned it so if I got arrested, my mates would bail me out. My family would never find out because that was one of my biggest fears. Did you feel you would never get caught? When you're on drugs, the drugs is telling you you're Mr. Cool Guy, you're living out of a movie like Blow, um, you're above the law, and it's, it's selling you all these things and until you sober up, you don't understand like how ridiculous that all is. But once I was in there sober, I had to call my parents because the police were smarter than me. They'd arrested all my friends with me. I couldn't. There was nobody else to turn to. So having to call them and just hearing the heartbreak in their voices. Do you remember that phone call? Oh God, yeah. It's like it's etched in my head. What did you say? I already knew they knew because my aunt had told them. And um, how did your auntie know? Because I was allowed to, I knew I'd figured out how to make a, lo a local collect call from the jail to her. So I was bracing then, um, and it was just like I just felt completely sick to my stomach. Like to come from a family who'd supported me, encouraged my further education, gave me nothing but love, come and visited me to see me when I was successful living in this big house in the stock market and then to have to basically be like, you know, yeah, to admit I was dealing actually on a large scale, been some serious crimes. They had no idea. They had no idea. And then there's the hearing, the pain in the voices. That was just... How did they respond? They were shock, in shock. Um, they just said that they had my back and they loved me unconditionally and whatever trouble I was in, they would support me. And that was just relief washing over me then. 
Were you scared of being a victim in prison? Uh, you know, it's really big. Fear is, if you end up in prison, you're going to get raped. And the kids at the schools, it's one of the most common questions I get asked is, did you drop the soap in the shower? Um, I held on very tightly to that soap. That never happened to me. I had people protecting me. I made alliances with the right people. But rape is so common. You have to go to a rape class in prison where they teach you how not to get raped. And you watch videos. They're a bit lame, really, but if someone can learn from them, power to them. They show predators in the day room, young people coming in. Predators offer sweets. Don't take sweets from the predators. Predator gives sweets to some young people, and then they owe them sexual favours. And the conclusion of the video was, if rape happens, you have to report it. If you report anything, you're a snitch. Snitches, K-O-S, kill on sight by the gang. So no one reports a thing. There were times I would go in showers with soap, bars of soap in towels, just ready to smash someone in the head if anyone tried anything. Did but, that fear go away? Or was yeah. That the... Over time, what happens is, in the beginning, you're terrified of the gang rules. You're terrified of getting raped. You're terrified of the guards' rules. You think you've got to, and the gang rules and the guards' rules contradict. So you've got all this coming at you, and you're thinking, how on earth am I going to get through this? But over time, you learn how to play around the rules, and you make friends with the right people, and you get a certain degree of security. So in my uh, situation, a guy came into my life who protected me. I'd been attacked. I had a new cellmate, and he, he got his mate to attack me. They didn't like me from the get-go. What happened was I'd moved into a new building. I didn't know anyone. My cellmate was a serial home invader torturer. He'd been breaking people's houses, and his preferred method of torture was taking hammers to people's kneecaps. And when I moved into him, he said, I've got a padlock in a sock. I can smash your brains in while you sleep. I can kill you whenever I want. So he got his mate, this 20-stone California biker, to attack me just when my parents had flown 5,000 miles to visit me for Christmas. Your parents had seen you after you'd been attacked? Oh, yeah, they saw me after I got attacked, yeah. I was on the way to the visit. He walks up behind me in a crowded corner. He's like, bam, starts kidney punching me. Gang rule is you must hit back or else you're a punk and everyone's going to prey on you. Um, but if you do hit back and the guards see it, you're arrested and sent to lockdown, you lose your visits. So I had no choice. With all the prisoners watching, I had to hit back. So I start hitting back. It was like hitting a big bag of cement. I mean, this guy was huge. And um, he was training kickboxing. So he smashed me up, knocked me down. I go to visit all injured. And in response to your question, yeah, my mum's like, what's up with you? And I can't say, because she's already a nervous breakdown of my situation. So I did manage to get moved out of that cell. It took my family calling the British Embassy to get me moved. I did eventually have to tell him I felt this guy was going to kill me, my soulmate. And um, my new cellmate then introduced me to a guy called Two Tonys who he knew he could protect me. What was it like the day you got released? Going in and getting released are almost as equally mind-bending, but in different ways. So going in, You've got the trauma of the new arrival. You're thinking something Shawshank's going to happen to you. And you adapt over time and you settle into a position where it was almost like in my cell I was running an office because my writing was going on the internet and all these prisoners were getting letters and books sent to them from people from around the world, kind blog readers. So my thought process had gone from 
panic and shock to settled, but then they start to go anxious again as you get closer to the gate. And there's a word for it, it's called gate fever. Because you're thinking, how am I going to function in the outside world? Will people want to cross the road because they know I've got a criminal record? How am I going to get a girlfriend? Women aren't going to want to date someone who's been in prison. How am I going to get a job with a criminal record? I've got no money. How am I going to rebuild my life? These are the things that then start to keep you up at nights. And it gets more intense then as you get closer to the gates. Mum and sister are crying and just gave them, just, it was just so nice to just, just give them big hugs and, and just think that I'm free, I'm finally free. And right away they took me f for Indian food, which is my favourite, but I got the gag reflex because of the, there was a meal in the prison called Red Death that sometimes had dead rats in it. It was a mystery meat slop. So to this day, I got the gag reflex from chicken tikka masala, so to this day I've stayed vegetarian. Yeah, but yeah, it was adjusting them. My mum said I was like a puppy dog following around the house waiting for orders. So it took, it took me a year to stay at my parents' house and um, before I felt confident enough that I could not, I'd adjusted enough to get back to normal. And a Harley Street therapist, drug counsellor, had, he'd offered me the opportunity to start speaking in the schools. When I did that first talk, so nervous I couldn't eat my breakfast, paced like a prisoner in a cell at the front of the stage, soaked in sweat, this raw, nervous energy just crackling off me. When I got out there, I called my mum, I said they must have thought I was a lunatic. I'm not cut out for public speaking. And I thought that was over. And then I was getting semi-depressed because I've got a criminal record. I can't get a job. Out of the blue, I got an email from the school about a month later. And they said, our kids voted you the best talk of the year. We get a public speaker every week. And we would very much like for you to come back. So, you know, that helped me get my confidence back up. Where would you be if you had never been arrested? If I'd never been arrested, because I was addicted to that lifestyle, I could have very well done myself in with drugs. I mean, there's points on club drug cocktails where I'd overdosed on GHB, for example, as well as being on other drugs, and I was, I was flopping on the floor like a fish. And I'd instructed all my mates never to call any uh, health back up because the police would get involved and we'd all get arrested so they would just leave me down. Um, yeah, it was... It, it, the road of drugs leads to the prison, police or death. What's next for you, Sean? Okay, so I've learned now to stay on this trajectory of slow and steady progress. I started in the stock market when I was 14, made a foot my first investment when I was 16, doubled my money in British Telecom. And I ended up worth about two million in the stock market by 30. Didn't need to be getting involved in the drugs. I was so addicted to being the man and the attention. The lifestyle was, was even more addictive than the, than the substances themselves. You know, if you're throwing a party for 10,000 people, got your own bouncers running around. That, that surge of, of excitement and power, all these people coming up to you thank, thanking you. So um, it, was, it, was, it was getting over all of that.
and realizing that by making that decision to get into that lifestyle cost me everything. Fast cash excitement, yeah. But if I hadn't have done it and stayed in my slow and steady progress from a teenager, I'd be worth probably about 10 million right now in the stock market. Instead, I had to rebuild my life from scratch. But that lesson has sunk in. So I started to apply the slow and steady progress to writing. And I never set out to be a writer. When a guard said to me in the jail, I asked him about the human rights violations, you know, dead rats in the food, cockroaches, guards murdering mentally ill prisoners. He said, the world has got no idea what's going on in here. So my writing got smuggled out, got put on the internet, and it went on to attract international media attention to the conditions. And um, that led to me then, over 10 years, I wrote my life story as a trilogy. And I've presently got seven books out now, seven true crime books. And my Pablo Escobar book was a bestseller on Amazon. So this month, I am setting up my own publishing company. And that's a credit to Slow and Steady Progress. And I, said, I, I say to the school kids, if you've got a goal at your age, just stay on that path. Persevere. People get jealous. They try and trip you up, but just just stay on that path. So that's what I'm trying to do now. Yeah. Sean, that's a remarkable story. Mm. Thank, Thank you, you. Thank so you, much for joining me.